All right, so welcome to the new project that we are working on, the Incredible Holt podcast. So one of the things that I'm trying to do here with this is scratch an itch, the ability for me to go pretty much anywhere that I want to, to talk to whomever I want to about whatever I would like to talk about. And uh, that is Marlo J. Dog. you hear lapping up water in the background because it's late at night as I'm recording this intro. But I wanted to take a couple minutes to kind of walk you through this. This podcast used to be called Dinner and a Podcast, but I didn't feel I was paying homage to that proper name, so we changed it. Uh, now I'm going and finding just as interesting people, just where they are doing their thing, talking about what they're interested in. So this one in particular is my dear friend, C. Brian. And I apologize in advance for the audio quality. Uh, one of the mics cut out right at the beginning, but uh, we didn't catch it until it was over. But the stuff in it is so good, I wanted to bring it to you anyway. So uh, he's going to be a little bit low, but you'll be able to hear it because it's a super quiet room. So you'll get the gist of it. But I wanted to talk to him because I had just finished up watching most of season six of Parts Unknown from Anthony Bourdain. And at one point he goes to San Francisco and does a whole bunch of training in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now he's been into it. His wife's been into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and MMA for a long, 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 long time. But he is a 59-year-old white belt. And as I was watching that, I was reminded about how much the art of jiu-jitsu made an impact on my life, how important I find that. And so I went in search uh, of a friend of mine who helped kind of pave the way and continues to teach me nearly constantly when I bump into him, uh, new things in the world of jujitsu and life in general. Super interesting dude. I hope you enjoy it. It's an hour with my friend Charles Smith. You can find him at charlesmith.org. This, my friends, is the all new, brand new, new and improved, lots of fun, any of those things. It's the Incredible Halt podcast. There are aspects of my personality that I can't control. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. The Incredible Halt Podcast. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret. I'm always angry. Often raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. The Incredible Halt. Besides, nobody's getting hurt. Podcast. Maybe if I can control it, I can use it. Hear the music. We're here at Triumph. Um, it is a jiu-jitsu, MMA, Muay Thai... Do we call it academy? Yeah, well, you're supposed to call it an academy to give it that sort of <laughs> swanky feel. But everybody calls it a gym. I mean, the, the website name is Triumph Gym, and I think that's where most people start, so that's what most of us call it. So we're here in the gym. I'm here with Charles. You may know him as C. Brian. You may know him as C. You may know him as Charles Smith. You can find him online at charlessmith.org. And then um, you have a, don't you have Charles Smith martial arts too, or is that not a... Uh, charlesmith.org will get you everywhere else. Gotcha. So, full disclosure, you and I have been friends for almost nearly two decades, which mm -hmm. is saying something at this point. But what I wanted to do today was just kind of hang out, and that's kind of the point of this podcast, to go where people do their thing and just talk about the thing that they do. So, um, let's go back a long, long time. Like I said, I've been training. Yeah, <laughs> I've been training in jiu-jitsu for 13 years at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I'm stuck in gear blue belt which mm -hmm. is fine um, blue belt blues. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so you've been doing this most of your life like where what did you start with when did you start and why did you start there oh okay uh i started june 6th 1984 at 6 p.m in kentwood wow uh and i started with traditional okinawan karate so let, let me try this because again i want to sound cool 
So I did Okinawan Shorindu, Shorinkan, Karate-do, and Ryukyu Kobujitsu. Wow. Yeah. And it, I've worked on that for years, just saying all that. <laughs> so I did karate and the weaponry that usually goes with karate. And, and did you do that because you wanted a martial art or you wanted to do karate? Like, how did you... Because in the 80s, karate was the thing. Was the thing, yeah. So is that how you fell into it or you just kind of... No, I, I think more than anything, uh, my mom said, we got to get you out of the house. <laughs> and there was a place nearby and she took me in. And yeah, I loved it. I, I, by pure luck, I ended up with someone who was a really exceptional instructor, Ernie Estrada. And again, just sheer, sheer luck, ended up with one of the people who had a long history and a deep knowledge. And it was Okinawan karate, and he was one of the few people in town who had actually gone to Okinawa and studied there from the source, etc., etc. And I got into it and loved it for two reasons. Number one, it was the first time that I was able to be like part of physical culture. So I, I stayed at home all the time. I was a big-time nerd, read everything, watch everything that was on. Well, back then it was all... We had three TV channels plus PBS. <laughs> right. And mostly I watched PBS. Um, so just physically, I had never done anything. I was not competent physically in any way whatsoever. <laughs> so I loved that. Because doing traditional karate, it, it's very much you working on your own skills. It was actually non-competitive. Which at that time, I think I was too sort of stuck in my own mind. I didn't know how to interact with other people. Not that I do these days, but, you know, so physically I couldn't interact with other people. I couldn't do any comp competitive stuff would have blown me away. So boxing. Or sure. That. But when you could go out and perform and it was all on you, you had to control your body and do so in very, very particular ways. And I was good at it. So I loved that part of it. And then because my instructor saw that I had a talent for teaching, he started me teaching, like assistant teaching, helping out within the first year. So how old there. are you at this point? 14. Wow. And so, like, and, and we'll get to this point, but one of the, one of the reasons I think that we've had this blossoming friendship over the last 13, 14 years is because you are this consummate teacher. So it's interesting that at mm -hmm. 14 years old, like, I mean, you can't even drive yet, but yeah, you're going <laughs> to teach karate, right? Yep. And, and, that, was, and that was it. He had, he had the insights to see that that is what would really keep me going. And so I spent essentially an apprenticeship with him for you know, five years, ten years, something like that, growing very, very, very slowly. It's not like, oh, hey, you're 14, you've been teaching for six months. Here, start your own class, teach your own, <laughs> which unfortunately we see these days yes. in a lot of places. With me, it was the other way around. It was just incremental, but it was every day. And I was the little golden child, you know, as the kid who showed up a half an hour ahead of time, and he'd pull up in his car, and I'd be sitting there by the door, and we'd go inside, and I would have a notebook with questions in it. Okay, well, how do you do this, and what does this mean, and what does that mean? And uh, just talk about a patient guy. He would answer every question and show me, and then I would sit down, and I would write down the answers, so... And this was every day. And at first it would be two or three days a week. And then after a couple months, it was five days a week. And then after a while, it was you know, to sort of summarize it. He said, you're going to keep showing up like this, aren't you? <laughs> and I said, yeah. He said, okay, well, here's a key to the place so you can get in in the middle of winter so you're not sitting out there in the cold. So then I'd go in an hour early and I would clean the place. And 
the organizer had to be organized. And then he would show up, and I'd go through the whole question thing again. And then little by little, he said, well, do you know how to do this? So yeah, I can do that. He said, but can you explain it? Can you tell me? So I would feed back to him the same thing that he would say during class. I would feed that back, and I was a very good mimic. It got to the point where after, like after five years of us working together, I mean, he was the, the boss and in charge of everything, but we would mimic each other so much. There was a joke between us because we would laugh. I would say it in his tone of voice, at his pacing, <laughs> and he would just kind of laugh. He, he was always there watching me, so I wasn't sort of teaching on my own, but he would be in the background laughing at something. And then he would mimic me at certain points when he was teaching, and we would laugh. So there was a great relationship, and because he was, he wasn't just good at doing karate, and he wasn't just good at teaching, he was a master instructor in the very formal Japanese sense, which means he was a teacher of teachers. So he taught me in a formal, methodological way how to teach. And over a number of years, uh, that's kind of the thinking that, that teachers go with. Uh, like students think in terms of a year, and teachers think in terms of a decade, as far as learning how to do what you do. Sure. And so that went just on and on, and it was great for me. It was perfect because I got good at karate, which traditional karate, you work in the two-person stuff, the contact-oriented stuff, very slowly. Which, like I said, at 14, I really needed. I think I would have... If I would have come to my own jiu-jitsu school back then, I think I would have been blown away because I was young and just not used to contact or being punched by somebody. Or I just wasn't a rough-and-tumble kid. So it eased me into it just perfectly. And then my instructor, in addition to being this teacher of teachers, he also um, had his master's in psychology. So I'm a real cerebral, get-in-your-head kind of guy, and so that was just... I had been watching PBS for so long that I would speak in terms of, you know, this neurological science or, or psychology <laughs> of the principles. And he just said, oh, yeah, of course. Who else? Of course you know how to talk this way. Doesn't everybody? So that was huge for me. And then after a while, I ended up taking over his school. He retired and said, do you want to run your own school? I said, yes. He said, okay, here, have a school. And so how old are you when you have your own school? Uh... Well, this is where my memory falls apart, but I would have been in my 20s, going through college, somewhere in there. So what, 91, 92, something like if that? If you say so. Yeah. I, I, st I, I still think it's 1984. So <laughs> I really do. You talk to me about updated music, and I'm like, oh, wow, you've you got to hear this, this new guy. He's totally crazy. He's just like Marilyn somebody, but he's a guy, even though he's Mar I don't know. It's really cruel. It's yeah. So to me, I'm still, you know, if it's not Billy Idol, eh, right. I get it. Yes. Or Vivaldi. I can do Vivaldi. So I took over a school, and to sum that up, I learned all of the business side of running a school when you actually have to pay the bills and do all that. So that was another huge education, which I won't go into. Most of that was just, yeah, most of what I learned was the education part of the business and how to run things and how hard it is. How not to do things. I think, I think I made all the mistakes twice. Um, and around about then I was also looking at MMA. Just, just prior to when America got introduced to it because of the first UFC. Sure. I was looking at it, but back then it was still, 
It had no name, so it was no holds barred or cage fighting or. So you weren't no you weren't looking at Valetudo at that point. You were looking at just stuff going on here. It it was Valetudo. That was part of it, but up until then, in America at least, the it just didn't have a name. It was always a hodgepodge. So the closest you could come was sort of to say, well, it's kind of Jikundo, JKD, but in the way that. Uh, guys like Dan Nosanto approached it, and the people who were around him, like Eric Paulson, and the people who just wanted to try everything all at once, and let's actually do it. Not talk about how deadly right. our punches and kicks are, but let's actually do this stuff and see what works, and, and injuries be damned. <laughs> and then the UFC hit, and that made it, number one, mixed martial arts became the thing. And with uh, Hoist Gracie, everybody figured out what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was. And it wasn't so much Hoist as it was his brother, Horian, marketing. He was yep. great at marketing everything, and, well, up to a certain point. And so that moved me more towards MMA. It just gave me a name. And people started to say, oh, well, you kind of do everything, don't you? you? You mix the kicking and the punching and the grappling. And I said, well, yeah, that's, that's what I do. At that point, I had moved away from the traditional karate and was doing traditional karate plus all this experimental stuff. And so I was getting into more and more heavy contact and all that. Now, were you, just because I know you, right? Like, when you talk about experimental stuff, is this like Charles' experimental stuff? Or are you just going, okay, I like what Bruce Lee is doing with Jeet Kune Do over here, so I'm going to take that thing, and then I like what this guy's doing with this thing, and I'm going to, and I like Muay Thai, and I like the idea of, you know, elbows and knees, and so I'm going to merge. Is that kind of what you're doing, or are you just... All of the above. Because there wasn't anybody doing it well, at least in, you know, in our little West Michigan world, if you went out to California... Uh, there are people doing it there and so on but in our little corner of the world no one was doing it seriously or in a well organized way so it was all of the above sort of swimming around finding everything that I could but again because I had started with traditional karate but under such an unusual instructor who could explain to me what it all meant if you look at traditional karate it's a lot of people punching and kicking in the air but there's supposed to be meaning behind that and a lot more to it than just that. So my instructor could explain to me what it meant and why you did it and what the concepts and principles of the fighting side of it were. Because while I had no fighting background, he did. Uh, he had a lot of it from many different parts of, you know, from, from both sides of the tracks, shall we say. <laughs> yes. Um, and by the time I met him, he, he was working within the law enforcement realm, so he had a lot of that. Uh, so I was experimenting with everything that I could. And then along came MMA, which just gave it a focal point. And that drew a lot of other people to me who wanted to go in other directions. And to make a long story short, no, I can't make anything short, but I was running things myself and really enjoying what I was doing. Working my way through college, I think I was in my sixth year of getting a four-year degree. <laughs> Because I just, I just kept taking classes because I liked them. I just, sure. I just loved learning. Uh, but then my uh, wife, in the meantime, I'd, I'd gotten married. So, okay, all the important stuff is much <laughs> you know, that little thing where you get married. I had done that. Um, and we found the perfect house. We had been looking for a long time, saving up our money like crazy, just every little penny. 
We finally found the perfect house, small enough that we could afford, finished enough that we could move into it. And so then I had to do the difficult financial situation type thinking, because running a school, you don't make money. Right. If you're lucky, you're break even. And I had to decide, well, my wife and I have our family plans, and we've just found the house, which we didn't rush into, but I can't have a essentially a job where some months I'm going to pay out of my own pocket and some months it's going to break even. So that was a really big decision for me. And I said, okay, you know, the, well, I'm really into martial arts. It's still the family first thing. And this is not a small thing. So I closed my official business, took the people who were training with me and kept them around and we would keep training. But I got out of the financial part and then got a job in IT which I worked at for 11 years sitting in a cubicle. And which I can tell by your body language, you loved. I loved it. It was <laughs> awesome. The hand gesture I'm making right now right. is really a good, I'm pumping my fist in the air. Um, but then I worked like crazy in IT, and that, that got us through the, the family stuff, getting the house, getting the car, getting out of debt, all that stuff. And once that was sort of under control, and it, like I said, it was a you know, decade's worth. Sure. And during that time, I'm doing the martial arts, and I'm training. I'm training in other people's schools now. I'm teaching for them. And I have a little group that follows me around. Um, but then once that, the family stuff settled down, we accomplished those goals. Then I went back to doing more and more of the martial arts thing. And just to kind of keep it in perspective, the... The woman who became my wife, I met her because she was training with me. So she was a student of mine at one point. And you never, as an instructor, you <laughs> never date your students. You never, don't do that. It is such a bad idea. But she, she overcame that hardcore rule of mine by being awesome and pie. She made really, really good pie. Um, and the job Which you I, don't mean as a euphemism at all. You mean actual pie. No, I mean pie. actual yeah, pie. Yeah, right, no, act I, I mean pie. <laughs> An actual pie. Um, and then the place where I got my job working in IT, uh, he also was a student of mine, and he happened to be both uh, just uh, a genius in the martial arts world, so adept at it, that we trained together during classes and after classes, in between classes, and he experimented with me. He's, he's the one who helped me figure out just how many times you could actually punch somebody with your bare knuckles in the kidneys before you start to get internal bleeding. He figured <laughs> that out. It was kind of systematic. And uh, Was there a scientific need for the answer to that question? Just <laughs> Well, for, for us there was. And we, we, and we answered it. Um, but he got me my job. And he, was, he also got me a job in IT where he's also this... this, this such a remarkable mind, one of these people who doesn't understand how something works, so just figures it out. Um, the gist of what we did was working with lenses, and the mathematics and geometry of a lens is incredibly complex, because it has one side that's convex and one side that's concave, and they relate to each other. And he wanted to figure out how this works, so he took a month and taught himself how to do this kind of thing, the geometry and how you could cut lenses on lathes and all that. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, so incredible genius. And applied his genius to everything that he did, including so did, the martial arts. Did he get you into photography, or was that just a byproduct? Or were you already doing that before you started working with 
geometry of lenses? Um, no, I mostly got into photography on my own. I mean, just be from the artistic side of things. Sure. I like art. Uh, that's what I spent my high school years doing. Art! And when you graduate from high school and your specialty has been art, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> you, you go in to teach martial arts. Right, yes. The yellow brick road ends right yeah, about, right, about uh, there. right there. Well, that, well, that was fortunate. I also love science. I, I took all the science classes in high school, all of the art classes as well. And then went off to college. And Where'd you go to college? Western. Western Michigan University. Which was also quite an experience. But even there, I was training all the time. So, martial arts had... It's been a center point of my life. And then everybody that I know who is significant to me, like you, I've met them through martial arts. I, I have no separate social life, other than my family. Sure. If, if you consider that social, like <laughs> figuring out how to avoid going to Christmas dinner and Thanksgiving dinner both. You know. But other than that, it's just all been certain. It's been around martial arts. Not that they were necessarily all martial arts People as heavy into it, but you know, people who became my wife and friends, and that I've learned from, and so on. So, from there, I don't know what year that brings us to, but the gist of it is, I made a big transition from doing traditional karate towards mixed martial arts, which I loved, but then started doing Brazilian jiu jitsu, which I guess you could say is the part of mixed martial arts that you can do and still go to work the next day. As, Dep depends as, on who you train with, but yeah. As, yeah. as a 30-year-old, yeah. as a 40-year-old. Because yep. uh, I love doing it, but the risks are so high. You, just, you have to be young and crazy, and by crazy I mean stupid, um, to get into it and to do that full-time. Yeah, the injuries are just crazy. And that's what I did. You know, When I was young, I dedicated all my life to mixed martial arts. Right. did the whole kidney experiment, so... When I say young and crazy and stupid, I'm talking about me. <laughs> I've done that all twice, usually. But that got me to uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is still has all the, the contact that I now love, the rolling live and sparring. It's as, as physical as it is, it's also mental. Trust me, people doing Jiu-Jitsu are very mental. <laughs> Um, and as you can see, if, if you look at the walls, they're filled with whiteboards as we sit here. Those are all my whiteboards and my students. So, yeah, so what are, you know, so let's talk about that because one of the things that um, gravit I gravitated towards was I got started, um, and you know the story, but like I was doing morning radio and just got super, super fucking fat, right? Mm -hmm. And I knew that a gym was not going to work. Like, I wasn't going to get on a treadmill. I wasn't going to do... I was, just wasn't going to do that. So I, I did boxing, and I loved it. And the weight fell off. As a, if you do a real boxing workout, mm -hmm. prom, I promise you, <laughs> the weight will fall off. Mm -hmm. um, and in my first fight, the dude broke my nose in the first 10 seconds. Yeah. And I, and, Which um, still looks good, by the way. Thank you. But, like, the, his dad came up to me afterwards, and he said, Hey, you know, if, if you could box you'd be really good at this sport, which was like, <laughs> I knew immediately what he meant, right? Is yeah, it like, uh -huh. you've got the, you know, you've yep. got the, the moxie to stay in there and do this thing that's totally impossible when this kid is pummeling you for three rounds. Um, you should figure out a way to do something with that. And so at the time, Clint Crabtree was running a school with Hoist Gracie, and that's how I got started with that. And I fell in love with what you have up here on the board, is this idea of what some people call 
human chess, mm-hmm. right? Because it's what are you going to do? What am I going to do? More importantly, how am I going to get you to do something that you don't want to do in order to do the thing that I want you to do? So yep. these, are, these are, what, 10 dis- different students then we're looking yep. at? Mm-hmm. And so they're not going through the same thing at the same time. Nope. How do you, so how do you coach like that? Um, with me, most of my coaching starts with uh, a few concrete things. So everybody who comes in is going to learn a few very concrete things. Same thing, get out here, start sweating, do this with your body, do this with your body. But then after that, it's far more based on strategies and concepts and principles. And each student, uh, there, there's a, uh, one of the key principles in teaching and in learning is sometimes referred to as constructionism. But the idea is you don't learn anything too well unless you can connect it to something you already know. And so what I start with is what the student already knows, and then I go with that. Now, ultimately, a student has, like, if you look up here on the board, it says there's a path. And this is a path that everybody goes to. It starts with an introduction, and then you build a foundation, and then a construction, exploration, and contribution. Well, the first thing is introduction. Just Let's just get you in the water. Let's get you wet and splash around a little bit. But then you have to build a foundation. You have to learn all the basics. And I'm really particular about building a very strong foundation with my students. So it's common out there in the martial arts world to take six months to a year to build a foundation. I take three to five years. That's usually what I consider a foundation. But all those skills are the foundation. You've got to find the ones that will connect to, that will build upon what the person already knows. And one example that I can give you is most of us at some point in our young life, uh, our brother or our sister or that weird uncle pins you down and sits on your, you know, sits on top of you and says, oh, I'm going to tickle you. And one out of the three of them goes to prison, but okay. Yes, yes, that one goes to prison, (laughs) but you know. Um, but, you know, someone sits on top of you and they sure. say, oh, you know, and they, they muss your hair up or they say they're going to make you eat grass or something. We've all been through something like that. So it's common for me to take someone who's brand new. They've never trained before. They come in and I say, well, okay, I'm going to introduce you to this thing that we call the full mount. And that's where I'm going to sit on top of your chest. And I don't have to tell them. They all know that's a bad place to be. Sure. So right away I can tell them, look, here's a concept. It's better to be on top than it is to be on bottom. Okay, now I'll teach them how to get out of that. How to reverse the situation so they end up on top with me on bottom. And then we go from there. Well, what's the next step? What's the next step? And that, as simple as that sounds, it meets the need for connecting new skills with something they already know. They know that being on the bottom is terrible. And there's probably some intense emotions that go with that. Either the hard kind, like, oh, I hate sitting here while my brother makes me dirt, or the fun kind, oh, we're here, you're tickling me, it's funny. But there's some kind of intense emotion. So connecting what you teach to something emotional is already there. It really helps them get a start. And then I have one thing that I know is there and I can build off of that. And inevitably, because I've been teaching for so long, I can make the next piece and the next piece and the next piece be something from that foundation that everybody has to get. It has to be really strong. 
And then I just keep going until I've gotten them through all the skills of that foundation. And then they move on to the other phases in that pathway. And along the way, I've covered some basic principles. Like it's better, if you need to control someone, it's better for you to be on top of them. And I talk about why. I mean, basic physics, gravity is on your side. Right, if right. someone just sits on you, you're the one who has to feel all their weight. Okay, so that's good uh, for you, bad for them. And then uh, the next thing, like, it's better if you're going to control someone to be on their back. And if you think about it, you're great at throwing punches and kicks in front of you. But throwing punches behind you, if you can't turn around, it's hard to do. Right. So that means, same thing, if you get behind somebody else, you can put your hands on them, but they can't really put their hands on you. So now I have a couple of fundamental principles of strategy. Uh, number one, that your positioning is important. Number two, that being on top is general, generally preferable to being on bottom. And being behind someone is generally preferable. Gives you better control. Then I can at least start this person on when we roll live, which is sparring, actually trying to use your skills against real resistance. When we go live, even though they don't know any techniques yet, they don't know how to arm lock somebody or leg lock somebody, I can say, look, get out there and keep trying to be on top or get on the other person's back. So in a way, they don't know any techniques, but strategically, they're working. They're working their mind as much as they're working their body. And in jiu-jitsu, in, in a good school, your coach gives you somebody to roll with, to, to work with, who's actually going to help you. They're not going to go all right. out and beat you up. But you have the word culture up here, which this speaks to like... Yeah, that's, that's our culture. Um, and so you know that you want to be on top, and this other person is going to kind of make it hard for you to get to on top. They're going to roll you over in here and there. And within that dynamic realm, you hit a number of key, you get a number of key things happening. Number one, uh, you start figuring out that you're going to have to think as well as move your body because you've got to think of strategy. you got to be on top, be on top, be on top. Number two, you'll begin to have questions about, well, the person got on top, but they pinned me down like this. They held my arm down, and that frustrated me. I couldn't go anywhere. So now you have a very relevant question to ask your coach. Not just, I don't know jiu-jitsu, teach me something. You can say, I was over here, and this person pinned me by this arm. What do I do? So now as a coach, I have the learner actively engaged. They want a specific answer to a specific situation. So I can answer that by saying, well, move your hips over here, move your leg over here. And by the way, when you do this, it's called a principle of shrimping. How to use your whole body to extricate one arm from something. Escape from a, a shit position. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I keep going from there. And because I've been, because of how organized I am, like all this stuff on the whiteboards, I can keep curving that beginner back around to the fundamentals to answer their question. So not the super wild flying arm bars and the really crazy stuff that you can see the world champions do, but the fundamental stuff that they really need. And then what I write down up here on the boards are those fundamentals and or a plan for let's work on four or five specific concrete techniques which will highlight this principle 
and by the way, happen to connect together with these other things that I've already taught you into a strategy so you develop a strategic mindset. Now, so one of the things about this evolution of jujitsu in the last, we'll just call it the last 15 years, right? Because um, the first 10 years of the UFC, I still think it was in its dark ages. Yeah. You know, prior to the Ultimate Fighter, it, was, it didn't explode in the way that it's been exploding. So prior to that, you know, when you and I first started, um, one of the many issues, as all of these sports have issues, but one of the many issues of, of jiu-jitsu was its parallel with, we'll call it, no disrespect to where you came from, so we'll call it American karate, where in one year, if I pay all of my dues, I can walk out a black belt. So I'm coming to a jiu-jitsu school, and I'm going to ask you, how much money does it cost for me to get a black belt? Which is not at all (laughs) how this sport works, Uh right? Mm-hmm. So now, in 2016, you've got a to- well, and probably in the last three years, you've got a different issue, right? You've got that person who comes yep. from either traditional karate or their kid came from d- traditional karate and they started doing wrestling in, in middle school, so they want to put the two together because in karate you really wouldn't get to use one sport right, with the other. Yeah. Where here, you can use them both together. And then you get the guy that watched a UFC this past weekend and wants to fight, yeah, uh-huh. right? What, you know, what, is that, what does that look like in the jiu-jitsu world? And, and you know, how do you manage that? How do you, you know, how do you keep them from just being pissed and walking out the door? Sure, yeah. The, um, the way I do it is mostly to start with everybody who comes in the door in almost the same way teach them almost the same concrete techniques, uh, which are drills, one of which is a drill we do. It's a clinch drill, so you're standing up, doing a lot of grabbing onto other people and pushing them and pulling them and trying to take them down. Another drill is when you're on the ground and you're going through all the basic positions, being on top, being on bottom, and so on. But it's active and it's dynamic. It gets them moving and it gets them sweating, and that tends to take people out of their preconceived mindset. And it shows them very clearly right away what jiu-jitsu is going to be like. And then after that class, one of two or three things tends to happen. Number one, it's just not what they were looking all at at all. You know, they, <laughs> maybe they came from an, uh, a karate background and they thought they're mostly going to be punching and kicking in the air or very little close body contact. Oh no, they'll know that you're gonna, you're gonna fight and push and pull and sweat all over each other. It's gonna be up close and personal. Or on the other end, and someone wants to get in and they just wanna fight. They, they've never been in a fight, they don't know what it's like, but they, you know. <laughs> right. It's like, you know, they, they, like you said, they, they saw it um, in the UFC and it looks really cool and they wanna do it. Uh, sometimes for them, they come in, and the first time someone physically manhandles them, they say, whoa, no, that's not for me. And I know you've said this a bunch, like with boxing. There are people who can enjoy being punched in the face, and there are people who will not. Yeah. If you don't enjoy it, you are not meant to be a boxer. Well, and I mean, I, us- you know, I usually, yeah, and I use that analogy in life, right? Like, yeah. there are just two types of people. People that can get the shit kicked out of them and get back up, and people that are going to wilt by that. Yep. And so when I throw them into these drills, neither, neither of these drills or the experience is high risk. It's 
is very well understood by me and the people who assist me in teaching what's going to happen. But for those people who are really coming in and they just don't know what the physical culture is going to be like, that'll sort that out really quickly. For the people who do stay, um, by the end of class, if I have successfully gotten them into um, what I like to call the flow, which if you look over there, that's one of my emblems. See how it's got little wavy lines? Yeah. It kind of looks like a river flowing. That's flow. It's one of the, the key principles that I teach. There's somewhere there's more of my artwork around. I use my artwork to teach focus, flow, growth mindset, that kind of thing. But anyways, if I got that new person into the flow, uh, and the flow means, uh, roughly speaking, if you use the definition that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi used, I just got to pronounce that name. Because <laughs> you can. Yes, right? because I can. <laughs> uh, the flow is, in, everybody talks about it in sports. If you're in the zone, if you're in the flow, or if you're, you, know, you go running and you hit the wall and you're feeling terrible, but you push through it and then oh, you get this great feeling. Um, that feeling is a combination of anatomide and dopamine and endorphins, serotonin, norepinephrine, all these great neurochemicals. If I can get them pumped up enough, if I can get them out of their day-to-day cubicle existence and get their brain producing those chemicals, they'll feel euphoric. Whether they got their butt kicked or they did some stuff that was pretty cool, they'll feel great. And then they will either go home and say, you know what, I got my butt kicked, but there's something that felt good about this. I want to go back and learn how to kick other people's butts. Or they'll go home and they just feel great. And they say, yeah, this is, this is like it was when I was young and I was wrestling in high school. Or this is like this other thing that I did. Or, oh, I love, I love how it's, it's like a chess game. And when I play chess or when I'm writing and I hit the flow and, oh, I'm in the zone. And if, if it makes a connection there, they'll come back. And if it doesn't, they won't. And that's how... <laughs> that's how... I don't separate people. I just say this is the core experience of jujitsu, And that, to me, that's really what decides it. People will say, well, I want to do jujitsu to lose weight. And you do. <laughs> you definitely do. I want to do jujitsu to learn self-defense. And you do. And so on. There are these kind of standard reasons that people give. But if real, but realistically, if someone says, I want to learn self-defense, and they come in here, after the first few months, they're going to realize that it's an awful lot of work. It's a very big commitment to get good at doing this. And it's just not worth it. If really and truly the only thing they ever got out of doing jiu-jitsu was just self-defense skills, it wouldn't be enough. It, it's too expensive. It takes too much time. They wouldn't come back. And honestly, go buy a gun. You know? <laughs> um, that seems to be everybody's answer to self-defense these days. Right. So, so that's not why people stay. They will lose weight, but that's not why they stay. They'll learn self-defense, but that's not why they'll stay. The people who will come back week after week, month after month, year after year, are the ones who hit that flow state and realize that getting into that state two times a week, three times a week, four times a week. It just changes everything else in your life. It's like you get to uh, wash your brain out, wash all the stress out of it, 
you think more clearly, you start to enjoy a lot of the other parts of your life more. And then all of a sudden, when they do look back and say, you know, I, I have lost some weight, I lost that, that 15 pounds, but you know, I haven't been losing any more lately, I kind of hit my weight loss goal, eh, but I still want to keep going. And that's when they'll realize why. This deeper, more meaningful thing that leads people to say jujitsu uh, becomes a lifestyle. And that's what will keep them around for year after year. And, and you've heard it, how people talk about doing jiu-jitsu, how they're addicted to it. And I don't want to miss a day of training. i got to get back and so on. And for, so for me, that's on day one, I'm trying to get them that experience. And then they'll hear from me about strategy and technique and principles. And if that also is the way they want to learn, cool. So that also... It's another entry point to flow, is mentally and intellectually getting in. Now, do you, so when you've got these, these 10 students here up on the board, like, are you making, I'm sure you are making, but how do you make the decisions on when they should probably get or not get into competition? Because that's a whole different mindset, right? Again, you've, yeah. got, you've got two different human beings. Yeah. You've got that person that wants to go do it to see what's going to happen, right? The, in my mind, the more healthier, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's go challenge yeah, ourselves and see yeah. what happens, right? And then the other person that wants to beat the crap out of everybody, yep. right? Like, um, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, you know, what are you looking for, at, and at what point are you? Because even there's competitions at White Belt, right? You could oh, yeah. uh-huh. you could strap on a gi tomorrow and compete two days later if you wanted to. Yep. Probably not a br- brilliant idea, <laughs> but I've seen people do it. <laughs> yes, um, you know, but like, what do you what do you look for, and at what point do you go? Okay, you understand mm-hmm. enough to be dangerous. <laughs> Go because that I mean, and, and right. this is going to morph into questions I'm going to ask about you. But like, that's how some people learn, right? They plateau yep. with the people in the class, and then they need yep. to be challenged. Yep, absolutely. And as usual, uh, I I don't deal with that issue too much. What I do is let's see. Number one, when people come to me and say, "Well, you know, am I ready to compete?" I, I, I give them a little spiel, a little speech. Imagine that, me uh, right. giving a talk. Yes. Um, and the talk goes something like this. I, most people, when they come and say, am I ready to compete? What they're asking is, can I go and win? Right. right. And I tell them about competition. If they're a beginner, competition is very random because there are a lot of people all at the beginner level, kind of by definition, right? There are fewer experts than there are novices. Sure, yes. But some of those people are going to be competing, but they also have already done four years of high school wrestling. And some of them have been doing judo and so on. But in the jiu-jitsu world, there are beginners, so they compete with the beginners. So a brand new person could go out there and meet someone else who has no skills except for a few months training. Or they can meet one of these other people who's just going to blow them off the mat. So number one, I kind of, I want to say, look, you know, when you go, just don't expect to win. You might win, but really it's, whether you win or lose has a lot less to do with your skill level at a beginner's level than it does these other factors. So what I tell them is, are you ready or not? You're ready if you think you can go and enjoy it and learn something from it, whether you win or lose. If you have that mindset, go for it. Take that challenge. I'm, I'm very much into challenge. Uh, that's when I think someone's ready to go. 
Now, if they were brand new and maybe they just didn't know the rules enough, they didn't know basically how to go out there and not get hurt, okay, that, that's a different issue. Sure. And so I would just flat out tell someone, oh, you don't know enough yet just not to get hurt. But if they're beyond that point, then I, I say, look, that, don't worry if you're, if you're going to win or lose. It's your mindset. If you go at it and you think of this as what I call a challenge, then yes, because when you approach something as a challenge, you're always going into it with a growth mindset. You're always going and saying, what am I going to learn from this? Now, yeah, if you're going to go compete in a tournament, you want to win. Winning is a lot more fun than losing. But even when you win, it's more enjoyable if you win and you learn something from the experience than if you win and, hey, I kicked a button, I got a medal, and that's all there is for you. If that's you... But they're swords, man. They give you swords. <laughs> Which is... They're, they're not even nice swords. They're, they're these, these cheap, flimpy little things. I mean... Oh, and axes? They have swords. I'm sorry, what? There's a- Who gives away axes? Axes? Somebody gives away is that axes? Naga? That's not Nagas, right? I don't think so, but... Axes? I, I, is that a Thor competition? Uh, what yeah. is that? Yeah, give away, give away hammers. Lumberjack jiu-jitsu? Uh, at least, the, yeah, if they were real, there'd be a value in it. So how do you challenge yourself? Because that's one of the things that, you know, to, to continue to grow as a teacher, you need some, someone or something to push you. So what, yep. you know, what's a challenge you're doing right now? Yep. Um, well, let me tell you. Ah, challenge. Some more looking at challenge as uh, a principle and a concept. For me, you, there's, a, there's a common thread from that beginner who I say, is it going to be a challenge to you? Or are you going to go and learn? For all the rest of training, and that is... You want to challenge yourself in a way that you'll learn. So some people will get it by going to a tournament. And that's like getting your challenges in a big dose, a big event. But one of the things that I do as I help people in learning, I try to help them learn how to learn jujitsu. Sure. And one of the keys to learning it well is to develop a sort of day-to-day mindset where it's what you do every day on the mat that is your challenge. So when I come in, or when anybody comes in, we often roll live. Make that your challenge. Go home thinking, did I come in with a strategy? Did I come in with a principle that I wanted to try to do with my friends in the gym? But we compete, so it's competitive, it's a challenge. But did I have a plan going in. I want to work on this certain skill. Was I able to make the situation occur where I could work on that skill? Did it go well? Did it go badly? Can I learn from whatever happened? And that's a growth mindset. And that's, that's where every day becomes the challenge. And when you focus on that, it becomes another very deep, very meaningful event in your life. But it's a small one. It's a small one every day, as opposed to people going to tournaments. It's kind of a big one, but it's only one day. And then, you, you know, maybe you compete a couple times a year, a few times a year. But challenge is, is the common thread through those. And even when we face uh, kind of the nastier side of self-defense, if someone uh, gets attacked, and I, I know this is weird psychology, but... If someone attacks you and they beat the tar out of you, and it's a self-defense situation, it's a horrible and terrible thing. 
And I don't mean to make light of it in any way whatsoever. But when you're going through the recovery period of being beaten up, if you can look at this from a learning perspective and a growth mindset, if you look at this as that event, that terrible event was a challenge, and if I lost, well, that means my skills weren't up to that challenge. Or maybe you successfully got out. So your skills were up to the challenge. But whether you win or lose, quote unquote, you don't win or lose in self-defense, but you know, you come out of it. When you come out of it, regardless of what your mindset is, even if you really got the tar beat out of you, whether you won or lost, and you think that's the challenge now. My challenge is to take what has happened to me and learn from it. And I'm not even necessarily talking about jujitsu. Like, oh, next time I need to learn how to block my head better or, or do this better or that better. But as a person, how do I learn from this? That mindset, that's the growth. A growth mindset is the long-term version of a challenge mindset. The challenge mindset is what you have each day. Short-term, am I going to face a challenge? Am I willing to face a challenge? How do I face a challenge? And that growth mindset, that when you're used to winning and losing on the mat, and then maybe something terrible happens and you have to deal with it, you've been injured, whether or not, again, you succeeded in defending yourself or you failed, you know, but you still got hurt and you still have to deal with the emotional and physical impact. And you think, you know what, that's my challenge now. I have to deal with my mindset and my emotions. Am I going to learn from this? Am I going to grow from this? Am I going to recover from this? And the healthy mindset for people who have to overcome even the worst sorts of violence, the healthiest mindset is to say, you know what, I've been in other tough situations and I've recovered from them. I've met the challenge. Even when I lost, I came out of it banged and bruised, but I met the challenge and I learned from it and I'm still here and I'm getting better and the same thing is going to happen in this really serious, violent thing that I just dealt with. That's a really powerful mindset. And again, I, I don't mean to lessen it. Some people within the martial arts world, they lessen what violence is like. Like, oh yeah, you know, learn, learn our karate, learn our Krav Maga, learn our whatever it is. And, oh, you know, fear no man, and you'll never be beat. And they, they just shrug it off, like going through something violent is, is no big deal. And I'm not in any way lessening the impact that that violence can have. But when you talk to the, the professionals and the counselors, the people who take care of that in a serious way, and they'll definitely say yes, having that long-term growth mindset, having a challenge mindset, knowing that you're going to face this and you're going to deal with it, whatever that might mean, that's very real and you really do get that from training. So morphing into a, a little bit of a more positive topic, yes, right? Uh -huh. Like to kind of, you know, wrap this thing up. Like one of the things about you, if people follow you, and as I said earlier in the podcast, charlesmith.org, where you can find you on all of the various social channels, same name. What are you reading right now? Because one of the things about you is that it's not, this isn't, this is far actually from it. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Right. Oh. You're painting, you're drawing, you're writing, you're making videos, you're teaching, you're coaching, you're like all of that stuff. Sure. But your 
your resume of books that you read, I always find to be very interesting. So, like, what are the two things, the most recent two things that you've read? Uh, well, one is a jujitsu thing, which is actually rare. I don't, I don't read too much because most of what's been written is really, it's, <laughs> it's poorly written. But this, what I am reading now is a book by uh, Valerie Worthington. It's called Training Wheels. And Valerie uh, trains and teaches out in New Jersey at Princeton Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And this is about her journey within martial arts and, and what Jiu-Jitsu did for her. Uh, and I, oh, I love the way she writes because she's also very well educated. Uh, comes with a lot of a uh, psychologist type background. And so she has the, just this, this brilliant snark to the way she approaches everything. I love it. She, she writes very intelligently, but with that snarky edge. So that's, that's really cool, and it's accessible to every, anybody if you're in jiu-jitsu or not. Sure. So that I've been reading. Uh, I just finished up reading Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land, classic science fiction. Uh, oh, boy. Let's see, what else? I'm always reading a bunch of stuff. I how long of a list do you want? Well, like, so what, what is your regimen of that? Do you, are you reading, like, because I'll read, I'm trying to read all year long, I'm trying to read four books a month. But that doesn't mean I read one book a week. Yeah. Right? So, like, how are, how are you consuming these things? Oh, they're, they're always mixed. Like, with the science fiction, mostly I read that at the end of a long day of teaching when I don't want to think about jujitsu anymore. I need that break. So then it's usually science fiction or fantasy. Um, but that's just kind of day by day. And then the same thing, when I do want more jujitsu, I'll pick up something like Val Worthington. And I, I don't plan what I'm going to read at any given time. There may be half a dozen things that I'm reading, or list, I should say listening to. Mostly these days I listen to books on tape, books on tape or whatever. But that, that's just when I have time. And it has a lot to do with what else is going on. Yes. Yeah. Too much jujitsu? No, nah, give me some science fiction. Um, if I've been reading too much science fiction lately, then <laughs> you know I'll, I'll transfer to something else. I'll learn. I'll read. Check sent me high's book there on flow. So anything on psychology, psychology of learning. Um, I like anything to do with science. So I subscribe to a couple of magazines, but. Neuroscience, biology, physics, astrophysics. Again, if I've been reading a lot on biology, then I'll get away from it and I'll listen to Neil, De Neil deGrasse Tyson. Sure. On anything he wants to talk about. <laughs> he's, he's awesome. Um, critical thinking, skepticism, classical skepticism, philosophy. And it's just all layered. To me, it's in a weird way, it's all the same. I mean, if you read... Uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, it's science fiction, but it has to do with the underlying themes of how religion functions within a society and the psychology of religion and spirituality. But it also posits that what we think of culturally as religion could be tied to neurochemistry. So that gets me back to the science of neurochemistry which gets me back to the dopamine and endorphins and norepinephrine that I was talking about earlier, which you can consistently create an environment in the gym to cause that to happen, et cetera. To me, it's just one big topic. It's all life. Have you, like, have you been like this your whole life? Like, like, and I mean that in like a, a systemic 
ability to connect things that are seemingly, I mean, in, in the design world, you would be the definition of brute thinking, right? Mm -hmm. The systemic connection of things that don't connect together. Sure, like, yeah. where did that develop from? Yeah, because you, I've, I mean, always, we've, I've always thought that way. Can you remember back to when? Was that like five years old, six years old? I, I, don't, know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, I guess the, the closest, number one, I have a terrible memory. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm so creative is I have to make, I have to reinvent everything every day because I forget what I knew last week. You're a jiu-jitsu goldfish? Like uh, yeah, like, yeah. Every three seconds, you're like, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> when did you get here? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I, I guess the earliest memories that I definitely have where things just made sense to me, where would be probably from the 70s when I was watching things like Carl Sagan's Cosmos, which the show itself combined a lot of different ideas, but essentially it was, you know, astrophysicist, but also dealing with uh, the development of life on Earth and so on. And I watched that, and it's just like, yeah, that makes sense. And to me it was, as, as I watched a lot of TV like that, it was every time that I would watch a show, uh, nature, with uh, you know the, the, uh, an educated look at nature and biology. So it was just like, oh yeah, okay, so that's how that's done. Cool. It's just one more piece. It just fit into the puzzle. And then it wasn't until later that I realized, sort of as I as I grew older, that that's part of why being around other people my age just bored me, is because they didn't think that way. So you know I. Um, my, my dad likes to say that I was born about 40, <laughs> you know, about like that. Yeah. And oddly enough, it, again, by the time I was not, by the time I was a teenager, so early teenage years, yeah, I, I hung out mostly with people in their 30s and 40s, and I didn't realize it at the time, but just other people my age bored me. People going to college were a little more interesting, but still basically bored me. I was used to listening to these you know, erudite professors and on TV. It's like, yes, they'll explain interesting things. Sure. Not, you know, what concert are you going to? Or, you know, let's get together and do what? I don't know, chit-chat. Yeah, that's chit-chat. That's, <laughs> that's, I like that. Not really your speed, right? No. Yeah. All right, so um, we're just at about an hour, so we'll kind of wrap this thing up. Um, again, if people want to get a hold of you, charlesmith.org. Uh, if people want to train here, what's the process? Uh, Is there an essay? Like, do they have to... Say, yeah, uh-huh. Yes. you, you got to fill out an essay. <laughs> Make sure you mention that there will be a quiz. I want you, to, I want you uh, to tell me what those five neurochemicals are that I mentioned at the beginning of the program. And then the final question is, spell umoplata. Omoplata. <laughs> yes. O-M-O-P-L-A-T-A. Not you. Yes. You just oh, cheated oh, for oh, the... Oh, I gave it away. Yeah. All right, well, now anybody can, uh, can come in and... <laughs> Train with us at Triumph Gym. If you want the schedule, you can go to triumphgym.com. And Perfect. there's all that information there. And you can come on in. We're laid back and come on in, give it a try. You know, first time is free, all that stuff. We make it easy to give it a try. It's like a jujitsu drug dealer. Yep. Mm -hmm. First hit's free. First one's free. After that, you are mine. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. <laughs>